I'd like us to do what I like to do in our own churches and our assembly is, is if we could stand, please, out of reverence to him who speaks to us from the word. As I read Psalm 87, I would ask you to do that. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of our God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said that one and that this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, All my fountains are in you. Thank you. Please be seated. I have richly enjoyed this week. I know you have. Richly. I'm still trying to get my arms around being told last night we have to turn our morning worship services into evangelistic campaigns. I'm trying to get my hand around that. <laughs> no, we, we, it's been wonderful. Uh, the work, the beauty of the church. The beauty of the church. That's what I'd like to speak to you on this morning as we begin our day. The trilogy of three chapters in Psalms that awakened me to the beauty of Psalms. I was not raised with the beauty of Psalms. I never liked the book of Psalms. May I tell you that? I never cared for the book of Psalms. I couldn't understand it. It was all about ancient Israel. It was all about a people who would leave us in the dust someday, come back and be restored, and according to Pentecost, bring the throne of David out of the Mediterranean Sea and sit on it again. It just never really gripped me. Until I heard a man, a Presbyterian, by the name of Joseph Piper. I'm sure some of you have heard that name, of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, many years ago in the Connecticut Valley Conference on Reformed Theology. I loved his preaching, and he opened up three passages of Psalms, and I haven't left Psalms since. I love Psalms. And he spoke on the beauty of the church, the work of the church in Psalm 96, and the hope of the church in Psalm 2. Can you imagine that people would decide to break the bands asunder between God the Creator and us? Can you even imagine that? And yet, and God, the only response that he laughs, he laughs. And I, I, I just have been so intrigued by Psalms ever since. But we're looking at Psalm 87 this morning, a wonderful psalm. It, it, it arguably is my favorite psalm, though there are many things about Psalm 87. It remains a mystery to me. It is good to have pride in one's history and one's ancestry and traditions and culture. I never liked the Irish culture till I found out I was Irish. <laughs> I really didn't. I didn't like the, the rovers. I didn't like their music. I didn't like anything about them. 
I could not even imagine drinking green beer. I couldn't. I haven't done that to this day, but I uh, someday I will probably. But when I found out I was an Irishman, I love the Irish. I love the Irish and their culture. And it's good to have pride in that. As Christians, though, we should have ultimate pride and revelings in the church of Jesus Christ. All other pride, place, culture, family, and origin should pale in comparison to our pride as the members of the church of God. As soon as I say those words, though, I'm reminded the church doesn't look so good these days. It looks like, a, like an old bag lady on the streets of Chicago. It's forlorn, destitute, many flaws and failures. The internal problems of strife and pride. She's full of arrogance and weakness, God-denying lack of faith, haughtiness, and self-service. How can we possibly have pride in the church? Even our culture looks at the church and she laughs. The culture around us laughs at her antics. One of the things I'm quite impressed with negatively so, but impressed with the idea of this uh, emerging church type of thing and, uh, and how they try to be like the world and they can't be like the world. They, they, their music, they try to be rocky and rolly and all that stuff and they don't do it as good as the world does. it. They're trying to bring people in and people that come in, they laugh because we can't do it in that setting nearly like the world can. But even in other ways, the church is laughed at. We go to church on Sunday morning and our neighbors think, what are they dressed up for? I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that today. They're going to go to church. They're dressed up. They go to church. The British would say, it's redundant. What, is, what good is it? One of the advantages of Psalms is, though, it teaches us how we ought to think about the church and how we ought to feel. Psalm 87 particularly describes the church as she is ideally. In the eyes of God, this is the way the church is viewed. It, and, it's, and the church is beautiful. Let's consider three things as we begin our day today. The church is glorious because she is the foundation of God's kingdom. The church. The church is glorious because she is the mother of God's elect. And the church is glorious because she is the nurturer of God's children. She is a glorious thing to behold this church. The foundation of God's kingdom, the church is, in Psalm 87, 1 through 3, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things of thee are spoken, O city of our God. The psalmist begins by telling us that God established his foundation in the twin mountains, the mountains of Mount Zion and Mount Moriah. Where Jerusalem stands and Moriah, the location of the blessed temple of God, the center of worship. See, that's where in the old days it would lose me. Because I would see no connection to us, to us. But I see the great, grand connection now. And I'm sure you do as well. Verse 2 declares he did this according to his own good pleasure. See, it was, that, it was here that God laid the foundation of his kingdom. And we are part of that kingdom. Verse 2 declares he did this according to his own good pleasure. It was his sovereign act. He loved 
the gates of Zion. And it wasn't because the gates of Zion were so precious in and of themselves. It was precious because he loved them, the gates of Zion. The church is grand and great and beautiful because God has declared it to be so. Not because we're of any great value, but because he declared it so. This will be the center of the worship of God. He loved the gates of Zion. He set his affection on her. And by this, he declared Zion to be the beginning and the end of his kingdom. The church forever and ever and ever. Amen. It's a figure of speech here, the gates of Zion. He placed his love on the most insignificant part. I'm reminded, and I I don't want to make too much of this, but I I am reminded, I've I've often thought of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, Paul the Apostle opens up to a dreadful church, the Corinthian church. You understand their background and history. Some of the things he gets after them in 2 Corinthians and so on. Things that were not even mentioned among the Gentiles. They were guilty of. And what did he call them? In the very opening of First Corinthians chapter one, he said, <laughs> he said to the church of God. You see, he saw the beauty of the church amongst all of the fallacies, amongst all the sinful habits that some had. He still called them the church of God. He placed his love in that church, and Paul did. God placed his love on Jerusalem, even though she was a pagan city at the time. But God said that that is the place where I will establish my kingdom. This was God's singular purpose to establish the throne of David. He would promise him an everlasting kingdom. Here he would build his temple, the center of priesthood. The order of worship would be established. Daily sacrifices. Here the nations would come to learn about God. Here Jesus would come to proclaim the kingdom. And here he would become the sacrifice for the church, the redeemer and the sanctifier of our souls through the resurrection that would take place in Zion. He would pour out his spirit and begin that great task of worldwide revival and dominion. From here, he sent his messengers to the ends of the earth. Can you see why we shall say this, that the church is the foundation of the kingdom of God? It's the center of his redeeming work. The center of his rule over all people unto the ends of the earth. That's why Zion has even a bigger name than the city that bears her name. That is Zion. It was a city of God in verse 3. This city is a type in the picture of the church in all the ages. Not just then. Not just now. But on into eternity. It's why the New Testament writers were quick to pick up on the grand theme that Jerusalem and Zion were in fact the church of God. I was raised to say to believe that they were not the church. We are the church. They were Old Testament saints. I'm sure many of you had the same thought to you. She is indeed adorned with his love. If you read Psalm 48, you'll see that great and grand love of the church and and how the church is adorned with the love of God. The beauty of the church, though, is the beauty of God that dwells in her midst. Here he shows his loveliness in the church, his might and power and greatness and splendor and wisdom. 
Here is the beauty of God's church and that loveliness became a magnet to the kings of all the earth. In the church we see the glory of God on the cross as he redeems the people for himself. All the attributes of God are seen in one singular event as he went to the cross. And in the church is seen the greatness, the beauty. In the poor of God, in the poorest of churches, as the poorest of ministers, as they say today, me and you, the poorest of ministers, preach and proclaim the gospel of Christ. That dear message that he has given to us. The congregations enter into worship. Forgetting the world's allures and focusing only on him. It is a loveliness that is in you. In your transforming, transformation. In the people of your church. The stories of the families that are put back together by the grace of God. I have a young woman in my church, and we have them in all of our churches. I'm sure that eventually she came to me and she said, You know, Pastor, I had an abortion when I was whatever age. And I want you to know that your, your sermons and the Word of God is speaking to me. Cause causing me to be able to love again and be loved. Transformed lives being put together in the church in the glorious beauty of holiness as we find in the church. He is saying to the taunting evil people around us, look, look at my church. She is beautiful because she's the result of my love. Yes, the church is the foundation of God's kingdom. But we see secondly, in verses 4 through 6, she's the mother of God's elect. A most astonishing statement is made in verses 4 through 6. What does it mean? The roll call. What is it saying? These are symbols of the greatest oppressors of God's people. Evil empires they were, all of them. They were enemies like the Philistines. They would not go away. They were gnats in the summertime. They would not leave the church alone. From Goliath right on through the armies of the Philistines. They were like gnats. They kept at the people of God constantly. Nipping at their heels and on the edges. They were evil. They just wouldn't go away. Tyre was the arrogant one. Cush, Ethiopia. They will be accounted as those who know me. Because God has deemed it so. And He's deemed it so through the church. Through the mother of God's elect, if we might say that. He is saying to the church, look and, and see, you will be the catalyst who will gather them to me as their God. That's what this week's theme is all about. You will be that catalyst. You will be the ones I use to bring them unto me. You may think that's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth. I tend to believe it will happen through the ordinary preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. You may disagree with that. That's okay. But the ordinary preaching of the... And what is that? The authoritative, verbal, public proclamation of the Word of God by an ordained man of God. 
That's how the world will be reached. The Cushes and the Babylonians and the Philistines all will someday come to know the blessed Christ, in my opinion. But he is saying, look, see, he is saying just as her own covenant children are born in her, the church, so the nations will come into that same relationship and be the children of God through Zion as if they were born there. He will use her, the church, to give them birth and will establish the church as the power on, on, of the earth as we see in verses 5 and 6. They will come elsewhere. I, I see in Second Samuel 23, I think it is, where, where Uriah the Hittite. Now this is important. Listen carefully. Don't go to sleep on me. Uriah the Hittite. Who would want to be called a Hittite? The mighty man of David. What upstanding Jew would want to be called a Hittite? The abominable ones who the Lord said to wipe out. You see, he was called a Hittite because he was a trophy of God's grace. His dad or granddad had been in the language of the New Testament church, saved, incorporated into Israel. And he wasn't about to give up that name. Being a declaration that God had shown mercy to him. Don't forget Rahab the whore and Ruth the Moabitess. I was born in a family that knew not Christ. My twin brother, we were born in a family that was antagonistic in one of the mother to, to the gospel. God took us out of that family. He put us at age one and a half into a Christian family. What grace. What grace. He bestowed upon my brother and me. Trophies of God's grace, so nothing of us. Saul of Tarsus. Saul, one who breathed out threatenings and slaughter against the church. In Galatians 1, he recounts again, I persecuted the church of God. Was he proud of that? No. But what was he saying? God saved me. God brought me out of the miry clay, as the psalmist said. He set my feet upon it. God did this. God did that. And I am a trophy, not of Paul, the apostle, but of the grace of Almighty God. The mother of God's elect. What are we doing to be the mother of God's elect? We're hearing about this this week. We pause and ask the question, do we pray for those without Christ? Do we invite them to the place of worship as we heard last night and rightly so? They won't come. Do we go into the highways and byways and compel them to come in? Or do we have a case or us or our attitude? Whatever will be, will be. We Calvinists are accused of that. But we should be damned if we have that that thought. It might not be God's will to save people through our churches now, but we should be asking ourselves why. Because the church is the mother of God's elect. 
Maybe because we have taken on a persona of the world into their music, their entertainment, their stage, their sanctuaries be turning into auditoriums, theater-like atmospheres. I love John Jim Renahan's I was blessed by your email a while ago about a man who came into their assembly, an atheist. And I won't tell the whole story. I can't tell it well, but he left as one who says, now you ask me. You ask me, people that ask me now, do you believe in God? I will say yes. Why? Because I've seen God's people. And I wonder if their church was like a lot of churches, whether he would have seen a difference. He's seen God's people. Not only is the church the foundation of God's kingdom and the mother of God's elect, but he's the nurturer of God's children, lastly. The nurturer of God. This last stanza is a difficult stanza to translate. Verse 7. We should praise God exuberantly. Now, anyone that knows me and knows you knows that we believe in the regulative principle of worship. We believe that God has ordained certain things to be, and we believe in orderly worship. We don't believe in what uh, is taking place today in many fronts. But, having said that, I believe there ought to be a passion, an enthusiasm in our singing, like we've heard this week, in our prayers, and in our preaching. I don't know about you, but my tears came to my eyes yesterday as our brother Baines prayed. We should have a passion in our prayers, in our preaching, in our, in our worship. We should have our forms maybe in our, can I say this, our liturgy. We should have this. That's okay. But we should have a zest as we approach the Lord's house on the Lord's day. All my fountains are in you. Private worship is inferior when we compare that to corporate worship. Here is where we can confess with the church of the early ages. Here we can pray with the saints. Here we can experience the baptism that identifies you with Christ. Partake in the communion and hear the preaching of the Word of God by those that have been ordained to do such. So what do we say in conclusion? The church... The beauty of the church is found in her foundation of God's kingdom. The mother of God's elect and the nurturing of God's children as found in Psalm 87. She is indeed lovely. She is indeed glorious. And I look at our dear brother in in the pew in front of me. My heart goes out to you. We've been there. All of us have been there with problems in our churches, haven't we? We've been there, and my heart is just aches for you people. It's raw. You go through it, and you say, why are they acting like that? Why are they doing that? Never forget, the church is beautiful. And it is a place that God has sealed unto himself. She is lovely. She's glorious. She is beautiful And how our hearts should thrill that God has seen fit to save us and place us into his church. The church should be our delight. The delight of delights, our joy, our prize, our delight of all delights. Do you thank God for that church? There are two just quick thoughts and by way of, of tying this up in, in a conclusion. 
if you ever have a chance to look up the life of a 17th century man by the name of Cyril Lucaris, he was a Greek Orthodox uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, I believe. And he had much theology probably that we would differ, but there was one thing that he had that we have. He was an ardent Calvinist. Cyril Lucaris, like the Energizer Bunny, he would not go away. He was exiled three times, deposed five times by his enemies, the Jesuits and the Pope. After the last deposition, the enemies executed him. Why would he go away? Because, you see, Cyril Lucaris was obsessed with the majesty and the splendor of God. He also knew that he was dispensable, that the holy purposes of God would not fail with him or without him. Therefore, he would not go away. Two things I want us to remember as we leave this wonderful psalm. That is that God's purposes will not fail. It is his church. He has set his eye on the church. He has established the church. He has caused the church to be in the figurative language of the New Testament, the apple of his eye. The pearl of great price, you know all that stuff. But that's what God, how God views the church. Not like a beggarly old bag lady of the streets in rags as is viewed by many around us today. God views the church as wonderfully beautiful. And so God's purposes will not fail. It is His church. And secondly, let us consider... Every convert that we have. And let's go and find those converts. Let us go and be partaking in the process of bringing them to faith in Christ. I've enjoyed this thought this week very much. I think it is as Pastor Haney said to me as we came in the door the first day. He said, that's the Achilles heel of Calvinism. May it not be with us. May we consider every convert a sinner who repents, a trophy of God's grace. That's what it says here in Psalm 87. They are the trophies of God's grace. The Hittites, the Moabites, the harlots, from the dark side of life, from Philistia or from the church, Zion, as they come to Christ, they're all trophies of God's love, God's mercy, and God's grace, just like us. And I praise God for the peak at the church as seen through the eyes of the psalmist. God bless you.